0: As we come to the final interview of season two of the Secret Library podcast, remember the show does go on for patrons. Between seasons get monthly solo episodes, the chance to submit for Q&A sessions, and one of my new favorite social events, the monthly patron Zoom gathering for all members while we're all at home. You can join the fun at patreon.com slash secret library. Another announcement, the Next Draft course is off and running. If you want to apply the lessons you've been learning from this season, this course on revision is for you. You can plan your Next Draft at a discounted price through May 15th at nextdraftcourse.com. This is the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week, wrapping up our interviews for season two, is Susanna Conway, an author, photographer, and teacher who's been sharing her heart online for over a decade. She helps people know, trust, and express themselves better by teaching the tools that helped her heal her own heart and live a self-directed life. Her first book, This I Know, Notes on Unraveling the Heart, hit bookshelves in 2012, followed by London Town, a photographic tour of the city's delight in 2016. Studying photography at art school, followed by a degree in journalism, led to her working as a journalist for many years, but she was ambitious and lost in equal measure, The truth is, her life as she now knows it began in the spring of 2005 when the man she loved died very suddenly from a heart attack. She knows for a fact that we don't just get over our loss, but rather we learn how to integrate the person's absence into our life as we bravely continue on, honoring the past while birthing a new existence. In this discussion today, we talk about the process of revising this I know, and the special challenges and opportunities, as well as the mindset and discoveries that Susanna made revising a memoir. This episode is called Memory and Revision, because the tricks of memory are uniquely expressed when writing memoir, and when we're trying to call up the experiences we had as part of our real life, especially when there are people still alive, people who are impacted by this writing. And I felt this deserved a special conversation and a particular episode of the podcast. So as we get to the end of season two, we will be covering memory. And I'm so happy to share this conversation with Susanna Conway. You can get links, notes, and more information from this episode and sign up for footnotes at secretlibrarypodcast.com. Now let's start with Susanna Conway. Hey Susanna, thanks for coming back on. Hey Caroline, thank you for inviting me back. Of course. Any excuse? Really, uh, to talk about writing in books. Oh,
1: God, that's all we talk about. I know, it's true.
0: (laughs) But in particular, I wanted to have you because you have experience in an area that we haven't talked about this season, which I think is really important. And that is revision when you're dealing with memoir, because... You know, you can write a novel, in which case it's all up to you what happens or doesn't. Or if you write something that's more nonfiction and explanatory or a straight history, there's records and things to consult, but when it's your life and everyone has a different experience of of events, you know, when there's other people involved, it can be, it can be a lot trickier. And the other bit, I think, was that we've been talking about sort of polishing and doing the end process of the revision, which is equally important. So I thought we could cover both of those today. No small feat.
1: I really do imagine there's something in me that wonders if writing a novel and finishing off a novel would be easier because you're making it up, so what you say goes. But then I'm thinking, hang on, but you're creating a story, and you you have to make all of that up out of out of the air. Whereas if I'm writing nonfiction, I'm um, I was telling truthful stories, mined out of my own, my own life. But then that also felt uncomfortable because I was sometimes I wondered if I was making things up to make the book more interesting. That came up a few times. Um, But also I wanted to share events as accurately as I could, you know. So having to go back into those, the writing part of it was really hard and then the editing part of it was really hard. So I don't know if novel writing or non-fiction writing. I don't know which one's easier. I think maybe they're just both really hard with their own set of challenges.
0: I think so. I think it's, it feels to me like they're, they're both hard for different reasons. Like yes. with, with memoir, you, you're kind of spoiled for choice and that you have all of this material and then you have to decide, okay, where does this start? Where does it end? What defines it? Which bits do I put in? Which bits do I leave out? And it can feel overwhelming in that direction, I think. And then with fiction, it's like, okay, there's this big blank page and I have to make all these choices about what happens on it. It's almost like there's not enough for you to pull from sometimes. Um, At least that's been my
1: experience. There were definitely moments when I felt like I was fictionalising my stories. And I think it was definitely the points where I had to, well, I wanted to put tiny bits of dialogue in because it just, I didn't want it to just be like I was writing out my diary because that would have just been so boring. So there were a couple of points where I had my godson saying something to me and I'm remembering this little, this little you know, moment in time that happened between us. So I, I put in bits of dialogue and that always felt quite odd because it felt like I was fictionalising my experience. But then I, I had to remember reading certain non-fiction memoir books and having those little bits of dialogue in it. And it does help you get into the story. Even though it's real, it's still a story that I'm telling. And I had to remind myself of that, because it did feel weird to... Because I couldn't remember actual words that were spoken necessarily. You know, I don't keep a, a running log of those in my journal. So there were points where I was putting words into real life people's mouths. And it felt, it did feel weird. So there was definitely a sort of storytelling in a in a fiction writing way. There was definitely a bit of that going on for sure. I think that's sort of a question that is unique
0: to memoir, which is, are you revising for factual accuracy, or are you revising to create the atmosphere and emotional experience of a period in time? And I don't know if you can revise for factual word-by-word transcription unless you've got, like, you know, CCTV in your house, which you can
1: then spool back and look at. I don't know how else you could do it. Exactly. You do. You do have to kind of make it up. I mean, I had a feel for what was said, um, and there were definitely – little snippets of conversation that I would remember so that was good but still a lot of the time I had to I had to make it up that's what it felt like so but then I don't know. I think writing memoirs is weird because, at least in my case, so it's not like I was looking back over this enormously long life that I'd led and I was, you know, retelling all these different stories of what had happened. I was focusing more on a particular time period when I was grieving. Um, so the, the the main storytelling bits were in my first chapter, which was all about losing my partner, and I remember there was one. Bit I was writing about where I got to talk to a friend of my mother's who was also grieving loss of their child, their adult child, um, and I remember talking to him so clearly, but I still had to make up the words that were said. But it was such an important little you know story to retell that I had to include it and I had to add it in. But yeah, it did feel weird, and I keep coming back to this. But it was it was weird to put words into people's mouths. It was odd. And yeah, there's no CCTV. (laughs) And I couldn't, I didn't want to, you know, actually speak to the people involved and say, you know, do you remember when we had that conversation? I mean, maybe that's something people do. I don't know. But in my case, that wasn't, you know, that just wasn't an option. So yeah, I had to do it as carefully and then, you know, just do it really carefully and thoughtfully and, and try to get to the essence of what was said Without, I wasn't trying to dramatize it. Maybe that's the word. I was just trying to make it be truthful and simple and communicate what was felt in that conversation, you know?
0: Yeah. So that was a process that happened during the first draft. Yes. And do you have a sense of, so you got to the end of your first draft. Did you do other subsequent drafts before you were dealing with an editor or or how was that middle area for you as you were getting the, the book where you wanted it to be before
1: it was published? So I've been checking the timeline, looking back through emails, because this was nine years ago, which feels like a very, very long time ago. Um, writing the first draft took, obviously, months, and I can't, actually couldn't tell you how many months, but... I want to say about six months because I spent a lot of dedicated time on it. And then I had other work to do. But I reckon about five or six months for the first draft, I remember getting and it was only 50,000 words that were needed. So it wasn't a hugely long book. But still, it felt felt like a lot. And I was doing it chapter by chapter. And each chapter was its own kind of theme, had its own theme. And it was like its own story world. Um, And I didn't do it chronologically. Obviously, I started with like chapter four, it was the easiest, I thought. So I spent all those months writing it, didn't feel hugely confident with it, but needed a big chunk of words. Yes, to send to my editor. So I sent that to her um, at the beginning of April in 2011. And checking the email threads, I got my first bunch of feedback from her in June. So a couple of months later. Um, And there was a bit of chit-chat in between. But I had a whole two months of waiting to, to actually get the email with all the feedback. And what she came back with, a lot of it was kind of structural stuff. A lot of it was pointing out where i had been telling rather than showing um just things like that she wanted to help me tighten it up she didn't um what am i trying to say she didn't go in with a big red pen she just sent me a list of points in a, in an actual email and said this is this is what i'm thinking as i'm reading it now it's time to go back in and and you do the tightening and so i had a whole month to tighten it up and rewrite bits and you know jiggle things around and then i sent it back to her so the actual rewriting and revising happened just over a month um which i think is actually quite good because i if i'd have spent any longer on it i would have gotten so into my head and and doubted so much of what i'd written or the stories that i was telling you know the anecdotes and the reflections so it was better to to have that faster turnaround. And I think a lot of it was down to, you know, publishing deadlines. Like we had to get a move on. It was time to, to get things moving. So I, but I do remember feeling completely overwhelmed when I started the rewrite Um, But then feeling more confident as I went on because I was able to cut out bits that I thought weren't very good. Um, My editor was able to point out a few of them, which is really helpful. But also having had a few months between sending it to her and getting her feedback, I'd had time to to step away from it and to not think about it. And obviously to stress and to worry. But I needed that space so I could come back in and go, okay, it's not as shit as I thought it was but I can see where I can make this better and it was nice to have those four or five weeks to just to roll my sleeves up and get in there it was it was good so what I sent back I, re- I remember feeling much more confident about um but ultimately I can I can read the book back now and still find bits where I'm like God I wish I'd taken that out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, really wish I hadn't used that word. Oh my God, who do I think I am? You know, even now I can't. I mean, I'd never sit down and read it, but I can dip in and out. And actually, I do. I have dipped in and read a passage and gone, Oh, that's really good. Oh, you know, who wrote that? Because uh, and I'm amazed. And I and I don't I don't remember so much of of what the book contains. Oh, I mean, I remember the stories, but I don't remember. The words. I just, after all these years, you, you just forget. It's like giving birth to your first child. You forget the torture of labor. And um you're just like, oh wow, where did that magical thing come from?
0: So hmm. yeah. And you had a situation because you started with a book deal, right? When you started writing the book in the first place. This wasn't yes. something that you were like, oh, I think I might write this
1: and see where it would go. That yes. wasn't. That was the plan oh, from the beginning. Oh yeah, no, that would, never would have happened. I needed, I needed someone to say yes. We want you to write this for me to actually get on and write it because otherwise, my my time needed to be taken up with money making activities. You know, that's the thing. I didn't because because I mean, it's so unfair that it takes so long to write a book and you get so little money back in return i mean obviously we all want a big best-selling blockbusting book and wouldn't that be amazing but actually in the real world of just just writing a book and not getting on a bestseller list but still making sales and 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 helping people and touching people's lives or entertaining them with your stories um you still don't earn enough to pay your rent you know it, it takes quite a while until that starts coming together i mean the ro- royalties from the three books that I've done wouldn't, wouldn't pay my rent. You know, that's kind of the reality. So other work needed to be done. So to actually be able to sit down and go, right, next six months, I'm just gonna write this book. That's all I'm going to do. That's just not, that's just not possible. So, mm.
0: yeah, I think, I think it changes also the way that you write. I mean, I think that Having, as you did, like a period of time that you wanted to write about a particular experience and being able to focus on that, take the time for it and then have feedback is sort of the ideal, the ideal scenario.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, it was great. I mean, I was lucky to get the book deal. I mean, don't forget, this was nine years ago. This was back when blogs were still a novelty um, and I was approached by someone who worked at a publisher, um and said you know would you be interested in submitting a book proposal so it was it was it was such a fortunate turn of events um and i think these days if that was to happen again you you suddenly need a bigger platform and you know like the the things that are required are, have shifted a bit back then they were happy to take a punt on you know a much smaller blogger who didn't have that much of an audience really you know really um and so yeah, to be to have it to have a a small, you know, advance that I received and, and just to get the green light saying, right, sit down and write this was was amazing, you know, it's life changing really. So I do love the book for that. I love that it gave me the opportunity to to be writ to have it written, but also to have it out in the world and yeah, it was it was like a really lovely foundation stone in my business really. So Yeah. I think it's Mm -hmm.
0: the other thing that I'm interested in is something that you've mentioned to me that you had to deal with in revision. And I find this fascinating, probably because I'm a giant language nerd, but that there was there were issues where you had to edit your Britishisms. Can you say Mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Because to me part of the interest of reading a book by a British author as an American is that I get to read, you know, different ways of of speaking in English. And I'm interested in how the publishing industry kind of maybe fiddles with that a little bit.
1: Yeah, actually, as I've been reading back emails between my sister and I, it's been irritating me more that that was the thing. I think back when it was happening, I was just so happy to have a book deal and to have this opportunity. I kind of went along with it. So they wanted, even though I'm English and I was writing with my um, British English, um, they wanted me to change quite a few words, things like rucksack to backpack, dressing gown to bathrobe, sidewalk to pavement, all of those just simple little changes that they wanted done going through the manuscript. Um, But there was one that I held on to. Actually, there were two. So there was one point where I referred to my mother and I called her mum. And I said, I can't call her mom because I would never say that. And that's not her name in my world. Um, And there was another point where I was talking about going to the cinema um, I think it was in the the chapter about grieving and, and it was a really big deal that I went to the cinema to watch a film um, on my own. And it was a, you know, it was a, an important thing to do something on my own like that. And I said, I would never call a film a movie. Yeah, that is just, that is not in my vocabulary. And and in the UK, we use the word movie all the time now, but in in my little world... I never used that word. So I said, I can't say I went to the movies. I can't say it was in a theater. I went to the cinema. And I said, and that's really important to me. Please, can we keep that? And they did. <laughs> Thank goodness. They said, OK, yeah, we can do that. And um, and I remember my editor saying, you know, I, you know, well, that is just not a word that we would ever use. But within the context of the paragraph and what you're talking about you know we understand what you're saying and i remember at the time i sent a i think i did a tweet i think i was still on twitter at the time and i just asked the people following me i said if i used the word cinema would you know what i'm talking about and of course and if you're in america and the resulting response was yeah Of course we would. So I'm like, they know. They know what I'm talking about. And see, the reason this was happening is because my publisher was in America. If this had been an English publisher, obviously it wouldn't have been an issue. Um, But yes, looking back, it's interesting that they wanted me to write as if I was an American almost. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not. You know, you have to know that I'm British. But also some of the stories that I'm writing about, take place in England or there were scenes in London. I mean, you I didn't make it. There was no pretense that, oh, look at me, I'm in America. No, it was it was a writer writing about experiences that happened in the United Kingdom. So <laughs> it was yeah, that was odd looking back. I'm like, "Hmm, that's that's odd that that happened." I mean, maybe if they had bought the book already written from a British publisher and then published it in the States. Maybe there wouldn't have been so many changes. I don't know because I've read enough books by American authors and it's there's no, there's, I don't see any changes. And actually, if there were, if I've ever spotted a change, it really stands out because so I'm like, well, you wouldn't say that because this is an American character with an American author. Why would you suddenly use the word pavement? You know, so if there's been any little changes like that, they really stand out. I mean, over here, we're used to reading. And reading American English, watching American TV, you know, we're, we know, we understand what you're talking about. So it was weird that they wanted it changed so much. And I write, I think, in quite an international way, because by that point, I'd been blogging for a few years. Most of my audience were in North America. So I'm kind of used to having that sort of international vocabulary that does i do see that in the way i write sometimes um so i think that probably helped but yeah because i was writing the book for them rather than them just buying one that already existed they had this expectation that i should i should change it a bit so so i did but i still got the word cinema and that felt like an enormous win yeah 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 I think also
0: it's, you know, when we're talking about nine years ago, I wonder if it would be different now because we're so, you know, with Netflix and everything, we're so used to watching television content from different regions. You know, there's this huge upsurge of, you know, Americans watching British television, even more so than they used to, and watching Australian shows, and you know, it's like we have all of these regions in each other's vocabularies now. And and to mm. me, it would feel wrong not to have them. But
1: yeah, I'm I mean, not in I don't. If you remember, I shared a photograph on Instagram a couple of months ago um, of my lunch, <laughs> of course, and um, I, I listed out the ingredients because I'd made this new recipe, uh, and I was uh-huh. in love. I, I was in love with it. And I said, so there's courgette, oh, God. And aubergine, and you know chickpeas, and da, da da da. And I had so many DMs to that people saying, well, I don't know what half of those ingredients are, but it sounds amazing. And it's like, oh, ah, actually, maybe America doesn't. Know all the English words because courgette is zucchini and aubergine is eggplant. And if I'd have said those, written those out, everyone would have understood. And so I do wonder, and I'm going to say it, I do wonder if in the UK we understand American more than America understands British English. I do wonder Um, because those are such simple changes, eggplant and aubergine. I mean, doesn't everyone know that? But apparently not. No, that one—the food
0: one—is the is like the last holdout. I don't know why that's the case, but yeah.
1: No, I was really surprised. The mysterious courgette. Like what? That's such a simple no-brainer, but apparently, yeah, nobody knows what a courgette is, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. My
0: theory on this, which has very little to do with revision, but I'm going to share it anyway, is that I think because America still uses cups and tablespoons and, and does not use grams or liters or any of those kinds of measurements, I feel like cookbooks are like the last holdout that it's, that there's less kind of spillover from mm. cookbooks between countries and, and that you don't see them as much from, you know, those same regional chefs. Um, yeah. And so I think, and if they do, if they have a big enough audience that they jump, then they change those words. So people don't learn them, whereas, you know, we learn slang expressions and, and, I guess people aren't cooking on all of the British crime shows and everything that we watch Apparently as Americans. Not. They're not like, could you chop up some of those courgettes
1: while you investigate that crime scene? I know. Um, Ricky Gervais wasn't cutting up any courgettes in the office no. you know, when you guys are watching that. I have to say that for the record, we do use tablespoons and teaspoons, um, but we don't use cups. Although I actually have some little plastic cups that I use for measuring that are made for cooking measuring. So it does exist here, but yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. There are still, I mean, I think your gov- oven temperatures are weird, or mm-hmm. yeah, there there are some some things like that. But yeah, it is. I think yeah, perhaps that's the last thing to cross over. I don't know the last sacred <laughs> thing.
0: Yeah, we have to have a cookbook translation situation. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe.
1: Maybe. But still, come on, everyone. It's a courgette. Get with the program. <laughs> it's good that cleared this up. <laughs> uh, but I'm wondering,
0: as you went forward, so you went through this process with the editor. She, she cleared up her Britishisms. There was some structural things and clearing it up. And then... Yeah. How did it feel for you to be refining this draft that was about such an intimate period of your life and and getting ready for it to come out? Um, I just wonder about revising when it impacts other people. Like, what were your concerns in terms of other people reading the story or how it was going to feel once it was out
1: in the hands of readers? Well, that happened in the original writing, mm. um, I had to, if I wrote about, there was at one point in one of the chapters, I talked about my parents, how they met, issues that they have. I touched really gently on stuff about my mum's past. Yeah, and I had to write those really, really carefully because my mum's still alive. At the time, I wasn't in contact with my dad, so I wasn't too worried about you know, saying things that affected him, but it didn't feel like it was my place to tell someone else's story. You know, the book was about me and my experience. It wasn't for me to, you know, to recount all these things that happened to my mum. But some of the stuff that did happen to my mum had an effect on me. You know, there was a reason why she's she's the way she is, and you know, and I've obviously reflected on that in therapy, for example, and and you know, I've sort of understood the the foundation of of you know, where she grew up and what I, how, how she passed that on to me. So yeah, it was more in the initial writing. I mean, I was in control of my fingers on the keyboard so I could decide what words I used to describe it and what words I didn't or how much I wanted to share. I didn't ask for her permission um, because I didn't want to write anything so outrageous or potentially hurtful or embarrassing that I would need permission to share it. So I was mindful of that. Um, But I did, I just wanted to be honest about things. So I just did it really mindfully. And then when it came to revising the whole thing and and editing and rewriting and tightening up, um, I don't particularly remember it being an issue with the stories I told about other people because it really, it was just a sort of general overview of the entire manuscript anyway. The burnishing that happened for me was making sure that the words I used were the right words, you know, and can I tighten this bit up? Have I said too much? I remember there was one point when my editor mentioned (laughs) how I had, there's a big section in the book where I talk about becoming an aunt because that was such a, big impactful thing that happened to me um such a life-changing wonderful thing and I did go on and on a bit about how much I love my nephew (laughs) I remember her comment was yeah no we get it Susanna you you love being an aunt that's great so (laughs) you could probably cut a bit of that (laughs) And, and she was absolutely you know right on the money I did I wanked on about it for five paragraphs when I only needed two so having that couple of months between sending her the original draft and then getting her feedback also gave me enough space to be able to look at the whole thing, obviously with fresh eyes and and be like, Oh my gosh, yes, I did say too much. And it's, it was, it was a really fantastic thing to be able to go back in and make improvements, you know? And I'm sure you must've felt this when you read back your first draft, you just think, Oh my God, it's going to be so awful. And you're cringing as you open the document and actually you get to the end and you're like, okay, it's not as bad as I thought, but I can see where I can, I can make this better. And you do get that opportunity. You do get to go back in and make it better. you know it's not you don't just get this one shot, first draft goes out to print and thank God. Um, you get to go back in and, and improve and tighten and just you have more clarity. Um, so I did I, I want to say I enjoyed the rewrite. I don't know if I necessarily enjoyed it all the time. There (laughs) were moments where I thought, I'm not going to be able to do this. I I, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. But I did. I got through it. I did get to the end of it because I wanted it to be good. You know, I was really invested in it not being shit. It wasn't even about being good. It was just, I don't want this to be shit. (laughs) So you you go back in and you just keep, you know, wrestling with sentences until it just about feels like, okay this is this is what I was trying to say and and I'm not embarrassed about other people reading it. You know <laughs> that was as kind of as good as it got. I'm not embarrassed by this. Okay, I can send it out. That was that was my revision process. I didn't want to let myself down. So that kind of keeps you keeps you going, really. the the fear of looking stupid, you know, so yeah. It was, I'm glad I got to revise it. Thank God. <laughs> I'm interested. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's,
0: yeah, it's necessary. And it's, I had the same feeling. I was like, this is going to be absolute shit when I read the draft back. And I was like, oh, it's not that horrible. And then, but then yeah. the second read through, I was like, oh, maybe it's a bit dull and I got to cut a lot of it. But I also noticed, and I don't know if you had this experience, a lot of like habitual ways of wording things. And ways that mm. I have a tendency to say things. And I learned a lot about that from reading the draft back, which has, yes. I think, changed my writing for the better going forward. I'm wondering if you had that experience as well.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, God, sometimes I read, read stuff and I'm like, what? Oh, it was, yeah. It's quite uncomfortable reading your own words sometimes. And seeing the repetitive way you might say things or, I mean, God, I can't even think of a concrete example. But even when I'm writing a blog post or, you know, some course material, I have a tendency to insert the word that quite a lot like that. I can write in quite a passive voice, which is annoying. And I see it. That, that's the lucky thing though. I can see it. And I'm like, OK, turn this around, tighten it up um it's yeah you can see the lazy way you write or just words that are fillers to get you through the sentence to get to the next bit but i think because we can go in and rewrite stuff we can see that and i i do believe in Anne lamott's first draft you just got to get the words down so you can edit them so i don't think anyone writes amazingly perfectly the first time obviously but going back in and seeing where seeing how i could write in quite a flabby way i think that's quite normal though and you can go in and just you know chop those off and cut them out and tighten it up there was a lot of tightening going on um and i don't know how different that would be in fiction writing but for non-fiction i think especially when it's got a memoir flavor you can get a bit self-indulgent um and and the whole kill your darlings things, you know. If it, if it was taking me too long to make a paragraph work, I knew I needed to just cut it out. You know, if I was really labouring, oh my, oh I just want to say it. I'm like, <laughs> hang on a minute, no, cut it out, cut, cut, cut. So I'm very good. I'm even better now at cutting and just chopping things out. But no, nope, no, if it's not flowing, it's gone. Let me. What am I trying to say? Let's, let's no get a blank page start again you know I'm very good at doing that um but yeah and I imagine when I was originally writing the manuscript there was a lot of self-indulgent ego massaging or just it is quite an indulgent thing to do to write about your own life even when you're writing about hard things or you know, I, I I knew I wanted to write something that would be useful. So that was always in my head. I wanted it to to serve the reader in some way. It wasn't just a self-indulgent thing of, oh, this is what happened to me. I'm so great. You know, you, you also want to sort of steer away from anything sort of self-congratulatory or, yeah, just felt indulgent. So it was it was an odd process. What an odd thing I did. <laughs> uh, but I would totally do it again i'd definitely do it again and i'd like to actually but again it's the money thing i don't have i can't afford to write another book at the moment you know my focus is on um creating my courses and and owning my income so yeah it was it, it, if a book deal came along i would do it again but for now i um my words have to be spent somewhere else
0: so yeah Yeah, it's too bad that it works that way. Hmm. Especially, I mean, this is something that I think about all the time and that that people talk about all the time also. Is this, oh, I would do it better or differently next time. And I think, yes, my word, interestingly, you insert that everywhere. I seem to insert so everywhere, especially in dialogue. I have these dialogue lines that begin with so, and I'm like, why, why, why? It's like, I've become (laughs) hypnotized and type this word and there it is. And I I think, no, I don't ever want to type it ever again. Um, So there's that level of change that you can have going back to future writing. But I think there's always this tension because there are these things that maybe we think, oh, that's a bit, you know, that's a bit indulgent and I got to cut it. But is there something that was learned by writing it in the first place? I think often there was.
1: You know, just yeah. putting it there the in the first place. Is just the, yeah, writing is the ultimate personal develop, development, just like running a business is. You're, um, you're learning so much in the in the moment of doing it. Um, I know what you mean about so, though. I say that all the time. When I watch back my videos I record for the Unraveled Heart, I say so, 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 so. all the time and as soon as you notice it it's all you can hear but it's it's uh, it's like i say you know that's my little sentence joiner so yeah oh yes, (laughs) i do it too i do it when i'm
0: talking i do it in videos i do it everywhere um i think part of it is that there is the german equivalent here which is also which is also a So you can start with. So it even works in German. So I can't escape it. I can't escape it no matter
1: where I am. But but saying words out loud is so much more fluid. We have all these little words and sounds and ums. And it's the sort of the dance of the words coming out of your mouth. But if I was to write dialogue as i really speak it would just be so cringy so so i have to be careful and yeah i remember and i keep coming back to the dialogue thing because that was the bit that i really felt like i made up um and when i read dialogue in when i'm reading fiction now i'm really paying attention well you know we've had this conversation with the book i was reading recently where the dialogue with the the stuff she got the male character to say was just so awkwardly bad So I'm paying attention to how dialogue is written. And so when I was having to write it in my book, I I couldn't make it chatty, you know, and there was never going to be pages and pages of it. It was more just, it's a little anecdote, and I'm just going to put a couple of lines of dialogue in there to kind of give you a flavour of what was happening. And then it's end scene. They were just, you know, sprinkled throughout the book. But yeah, they couldn't be chatty. There was no chit-chat in the book. It had to be... You know, this is something my nephew said, this was my response and something else. And then that gives you the that gives you the essence of that moment with a few key lines of of dialogue. So I had to do it quite, quite carefully. But, yeah, I mean, if I was see there, I just said something there. Yeah. I mean, you know, all these little little words that join up our sentences when we talk. It's also spaces where we can think, isn't it? It's, it's little pauses, but we have to make a sound as we pause. It's like when I watch a interview with someone online and they ask a question and the other person says, oh, that's a really good question. And you know they're just buying time while their brain is formulating the reply. So these words are quite interesting, but you can't have them in books because they're really painful to read. We have to, we've got to cut out the so's and the you knows and the do you know what I means and... They've all got to go. We've got to tighten
0: it up. Yep. Yeah, I think dialogue is one of the hardest things to revise. Because you want it to sound natural. It can't be too formal. So you have to have a little tiny bit of a so. But it can't, even if somebody has a habitual pattern of speech as a character, I find I can't. Use that pattern the way it would exist if they were actually talking in a real-world situation, because it would be torture to read.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's like the the book I've just been reading, well, that I've now put down because I can't finish it. The the guy, the male protagonist, he uh, keep, keeps using. I've told you this. He keeps using the word "babe" mm-hmm. when he's talking to his girlfriend. Say ba ba babe." Okay, but every page. Of my Kindle, I see the word babe when he speaks. And so I'm halfway through the book and now it's really starting to get on my nerves because I'm I'm, I'm anticipating it. And it's like, is that is that the only way you're going to draw his character is in the way he uses the word babe? Because obviously it's trying to communicate him being super chilled out and relaxed and all right, babe. And he's just, he's got a can of beer and he's he's that sort of guy, but we've got that now. But to keep using it is so irritating or it's like, you know, if someone, if you, the characters keep using each other's names and at some point you need a tiny bit of that. So we know who's who. Okay. Um, or we're introducing a new character and hello, George. Brilliant. His name's George. Got it. <laughs> Whatever it is. But I, I can't help but notice if you keep using the names to the point where all right, people don't talk like this and it doesn't need to be chit chat, slang chat, in the way the dialogue's going, but it's still, I don't say, hello, Caroline. No, that, I would, talk to you. that would freak me out. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. How are you, Caroline? No, but Caroline, what should we do today? <laughs>
0: <That, it's> <laughs> I know when <laughs> my husband says it, I, it freaks me out because I know he's messing with me. He's like, Caroline, yeah. Caroline, what should we have for dinner? And I'm like, Ugh, what's wrong? Are you a
1: <laughs> robot? <laughs> People just don't do it. Or if you see it, you watch some sort of, you know, drama. I was watching one the other day with David Tennant, who obviously is a god and is amazing. But still, there are a few bits of dialogue in there where everyone was using each other's names way too much. And it just, I can't believe that hasn't been eradicated from any kind of drama that's created because it's so awkward. It's so awkward. And it, ta- it, it certainly brings me out of the little fantasy that I'm watching on this big screen and makes me go oh my god so his name's tom is it yeah we got that because you've used it three times you just we just don't do that so it's yeah that does bug me and if and when i ever write some fiction i will be sure to be careful with how i use names because it just pings me out of the fantasy that i'm creating in my head as i'm reading these you know odd squiggles on a blank piece of paper you know i'm i'm creating this magical world that i'm seeing as I read your words and anything that brings me out of that is so frustrating. I don't want to come back into the room. I want to be in the world. So yeah, be careful with the names. I'm that's my number one lesson I'm learning when I'm preparing myself to write some fiction. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I
0: mean, I think that, I mean, this is not new advice, but like reading dialogue out loud does
1: tend to yes. catch those things out. So helpful. Well, to be honest, I, There was quite a bit of reading out loud as I was revising the manuscript, my nonfiction, because I was trying to catch the bits that were awkward. I mean, this is is true for anything I write. If I'm writing an article or, you know, anything, you just got to read it out loud. Classic. But it really, really helps. And also printing it all out on actual paper. Of course, everyone knows that really helps reading it in different, not just reading it at home at my desk, but going to the, going out and have some lunch and read something there, just reading it in different places. So I wasn't always like like a little robot. Reading the words back was really helpful. Um, But yeah, reading out loud, because then you, if you, the minute you stumble, you're like, oh, okay, that sentence isn't working. (laughs) So yeah, really, really helpful. Mm.
0: I think the other thing the one that gets me if yours is the names and and using the same sort of catchword like babe the one that seems yes. to trip me up lately when I'm reading is that what seems to happen if someone is a good writer is they'll have an unusual way of describing something it'll be sort of a, a mm. slightly artistic clever different non-cliched way of describing something, which catches my attention because I think, Ooh, that's really clever. But if you do it again, later in the book, I will remember that image and be annoyed that it's brought back again. If there's a particular word that's used in an unconventional way, um, And then it comes back even 200 pages later. I'm the kind of nerd where I'm like, you already did that. And I was impressed the first time. And now, and now I'm annoyed. It's like, it's your, it's become your, your little trick that you're using on me.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's tricky when we notice how they write. Yeah. Yeah absolutely because because um i get that yeah with words that stand out to me or yeah clever turns of phrase and you're like oh that was good i i i like noticing that stuff because it's a sort of geeky thing um i like seeing how things are written but equally uh, i it frustrates me when i'm brought out of the fantasy in my head so it's nice to see oh look how clever that is but that's when you're reading it in more of a sort of scholarly way you're trying to analyze how things something was written and sometimes you just want to be able to read it and enjoy the the magic of reading so yeah when things are too too clever well here's an example which isn't isn't so much a clever turn of phrase but book i read recently she kept using the word gay to mean joyful happy jolly Like the sort of the old meaning of the word but of course and it was a a modern book it was written in the last year or two so her decision to use that word in its original thing original sense really stood out to me but in a way that I kept noticing and she did it about four times so by the fourth time I was like stop using that word man because I've got it it, it, every time you use it it's it's it's, um, it's this little red flag that pops up on my screen because <laughs> I keep you use the word again in that, in that proper way. But how odd to be using it, writing about something completely contemporary um, when the word has other meaning. It has another meaning now um, in the way that we use it in our modern way of speaking. So, yeah, that really stood out. And that wasn't even a clever thing. I didn't even know why that was her her choice to use it, but it was... It was interesting, but it did trip me up out of the fantasy, which was unfortunate. Mm.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that it boils down to, and this is the frustrating thing about writing and something that has to be addressed in revision, in particular in the polishing phase, is that good craft is invisible. and bad craft sticks out like a sore thumb and so what you're trying to do in the polishing and revision phase I think as you're talking about tightening I'm thinking also about you're trying to erase the craft so that people don't see it they only see the story
1: well you want to it's like if you write the write the first draft in pencil not literally but you know write it in pencil and then go over it in pen in the second draft and make sure you erase all the shadowy bits of pencil that are still there so that what we see is the final pen draft because if we can see all your crossings out and all your question marks and all your little bits that you tried and then we're seeing the craft of writing and and actually what we we, we don't want to know that you wrote it we want to imagine that it just materialized in this perfect shape and I don't mean perfect as it as in flawless but as in it just arrived and we don't know that you wrote it we just imagine that it that it just came to be um and it is quite hard to get to that point but yeah we don't want to see that you wrote it we just want to imagine that it appeared and that would be that would be wonderful and so I think sometimes you have to include a few turns of phrase that we're all familiar with because then it just moves you through to the next bit you know like although there are some that are so cliched that they they just irritate me like padding barefoot oh god why is everyone padding barefoot don't don't use that we all we've all read that a million times but then but then like but in the same breath I'm like but what would be a better way to say that that isn't annoying i don't know maybe but but it's it's so easy to write in clichés that we've all read a million times before but that's not really that doesn't really feel like writing anymore that feels like putting together someone else's jigsaw so it's it's yeah it's getting that balance of writing things seamlessly but still feeling fresh maybe that's the word yeah. it's not about being clever it's just about having a freshness to it, and it may be that some of the words you use we all know, like we all we're all familiar with the lexicon that we're all using, but then the idea behind it is fresh. I mean, I, I, it feels like everything's been written, every film has been made, you know, every song has been sung, like it's all been done. But it's but it's the first time it's being done by you, so so that is the first bit of the freshness. Um, And then you can just sort of weave in. And when you're revising, you can weave in the extra freshness, but you can also take out any cliches or anything where you've been too clever. Anything that makes you trip over your own sentence has got to go. And I think that applies to fiction and nonfiction. Anything that makes the reader go, oh, oh, just tripped over, then you bring them out of the reading experience. So. Yeah, that's all the burnishing though. It's just polishing it down, smoothing things over um, and making it look as good as it can. And it's, I don't think it's ever perfect. I mean, any book that I've read that I loved so much I could die, I could still go back through and find a few sentences. I'm like, well, I didn't really love that bit. But overall, the entire experience was amazing. So I don't think it's ever perfect. But it's good enough that People want to eat it up and read it. So yeah. Yeah.
0: I love the image of erasing the pencil marks. And I think that's yeah, that's what you're doing. You're going back through that draft and taking away all of the all of the tentative parts or the parts where you haven't committed. And then you'll be left with something that's that's ready. And yeah, it's never perfect. It's true. I, I know people who you know went back between the hardcover and the paperback and and forced the publisher to let them change sentences in many cases um that they weren't happy with and that that's something that people do and I think people still look back at their books years later and go oh I would have changed that bit
1: but it's okay 100% yeah yeah 100% we do that I, I just can't I've never read the whole thing back in one go I can't it's too cringy so if I've dipped in, I think I said, if I've dipped in, I'll find bits that are like, oh, it's quite good, but I can't do the whole thing. Also, I was a different person when I wrote it. So with it being nonfiction, you know, my life's moved on now and I've got new wisdom that I could bring. So I look back at my younger self and just think, oh, that's what you knew then. And now I know something different. It must have got it. You must die when you read your own fiction back, though. <gasps> that must be oh yeah that's that's quite full-on I haven't had that experience yet so I don't know what it's like but yeah it's um all of this makes us feel vulnerable you know all of it whatever we're writing anything that we're creating makes us feel vulnerable because we're sharing our heart we're cutting our heart out putting it on a plate and going here you go Check this out. What do you make of this? And it is, it makes you feel so vulnerable. But it's so worth it. When If you're driven to do all of this stuff, it's so fucking worth it. Um, and I love reading. I love that I'm getting back into fiction now. I love reading nonfiction. I just love reading. I love, you know, eating other people's stuff. I want to look at their blogs. I want to read their books. I want to listen to their podcasts. I love all this creativity that's going on in the world and it's always been there but we've got so many new ways to 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 you know to listen and hear and read and see and it's great this is such an amazing time to be alive we're so lucky and it's you know overwhelming but also amazing so yeah we've got to keep sharing we've got to keep putting our hearts on the plates and, and keep doing it yeah well, I want to thank you yeah.
0: so, so much for for coming on again. It's always a joy to talk to you, obviously, especially about books and especially about writing. And I think this gives us a lot to work with, uh, people a lot to think about as they're polishing and going back in and revising. So
1: this has been amazing. Oh my God, I love talking about this stuff and I love talking to you. So thank you. It's always a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Carol Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.